Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to you. Uh, can I add my welcome, uh, especially if you're a visitor this morning? So good to see you all. Good to see so many people in the building, even though, as we've said already, we've got two big groups of people who I can't believe they decided to find things like getting married and going on family holidays rather than being here looking at Revelation. Such a, <laughs> such a, such a poor organisation of calendars, I, I feel. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we are here. Uh, and we're gonna, um, yeah, it's really exci- I'm really excited to be here because we're picking up our um, Unlocking Revelation series uh, as we work through this important book at the end of the Bible. Uh, If you remember back in the spring, we looked at the first uh, three chapters, uh, and during October and November, uh, we're going to be working through to about, I guess, chapter 12. We're kind of uh, a little bit flexible on that, depending on what else happens in October and November, but we aim to get up to around about chapter 12 uh, by then. Now, it's fair to say that uh, Revelation is a book that has divided teachers and scholars uh, and indeed Christians uh, down through the ages. Uh, Not everyone has had uh, positive things to say about the book. Martin Luther, the, the great champion of the Reformation in the 15th century, said, everyone thinks of this book whatever his spirit suggests. There are nobler books than this. And Luther never preached on Revelation. The other great champion of the Reformation, John Calvin, wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible apart from Revelation. Fortunately, not everybody holds that view. Uh, More recently, uh, in the 20th century, Billy Graham said, the book of Revelation may be difficult and demanding to read, yet it is the only biblical book whose author promises a blessing to those who read it. And others have made such comments as it is the only masterpiece of art in the New Testament. Um, For my own part, I I can't imagine the Bible without Revelation. Uh, Take Revelation out, and how does the story end? I've got nothing against the, the little book of Jude that comes before it. But would that really be a suitable end to this incredible narrative that spans all of time and space? No, I think we need revelation to actually make sense and to conclude this great saga. So let's buckle in for an exciting ride. Now, when we did this back in the spring, we we made space after the meeting for any questions. Revelation does prompt questions. You may even have been studying it yourself and and, and want to to, to ask some questions. So we're going to do what we did back in the spring. Uh, If you want to, you don't have to, but obviously if you want to, you've got time for a quick coffee after the meeting. But at 11.45... Those that want to, we're meeting the Barnum Room, which is the first one up there on the right. Just for 20 minutes or so, if you've got any questions that you want to ask me, we'll be joined on Zoom by anybody who online who wants to do the same. Um, and if you're happy talking and having a coffee, then, then that's absolutely fine. But for those that want to, 11.45, grab a coffee, join me in the Barnum Room. Now, before we get into the details of chapter 4, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, before we get into the details of chapter 4, I want to talk about some overall principles or guidelines 
that I have found, personally found, very helpful in studying Revelation. And I think these will help us as a little bit of a roadmap, uh, both for this week and the weeks to, to come. So three principles, really, that I want to share with you by way of introduction to this book. Firstly, uh, find the right balance when reading the book. Now, that's nothing to do with do you stand on your left foot or do you stand on your right foot. Um, but it's fair to say that, that there, there are many different views that we can have on Revelation. The, uh, the great uh, preacher and teacher David Pawson once famously said, uh, when it comes to Revelation, there's two types of Christians. There's those that you can't get into the book, that they fear the complexity and the difficulty and the symbolism and what does it all mean. And, and a book that covers such topics as the end of the world, climatic battles, persecution, tribulation. For some, it's frankly a book to be just left alone. There's those Christians you can't get into the book. But there's also those Christians you can't get out of the book. That, that same symbolism and complexity almost becomes an obsession that they want to understand the finest, uh, tiny details and discuss that and study that to, to great lengths. And I would suggest that both ends of that spectrum are not particularly helpful. We need to find the right balance. When, when we do want to open it up, we do want to study it, and we're not fearful of it, but by the same time, we, we don't become uh, overly caught up in its complexities. Secondly, uh, hold the book lightly. Again, that's nothing about gravity and you might drop it. Um, but it's simply that you don't have to study Revelation for very long to see that there's a great depth. And many different people will have different viewpoints on Revelation. Interpret it, preach it, present it in different ways. That, that's true about just about every book of the Bible, but it's particularly true about Revelation. Is it, is it a linear story? with a beginning and a middle and an end? Or does it jump forwards and backwards, a little bit like flashbacks in a film, so that what we read chapter by chapter is not necessarily the actual events order in which events occur? Should the imagery, and there's plenty of imagery in Revelation, should it be taken literally, or is it, is it more illustrative and symbolic of things that we need to understand? And there are many, many other points of difference as well. Different people will have different views. And that will colour how they preach and teach this book. Uh, very often, just for background, when we sit down and, and work out what we're going to preach uh, between us, uh, we generally say, hey, yeah, let's do that particular series, and here's a passage, and, and we go off and do our do our own thing. We bring our own flavour to it. It's fair to say that Steve and Danny and I, we've had a number of chats about Revelation. Not, not so that we enforce any particular view on, on the other two, but just so we make sure at a very broad level where we're coming at this from the same direction. We do have that same overall view of the direction and the purpose of, of Revelation. Because it's very easy, and in many cases fine, to hold different views. 
I acknowledge that others could well preach this passage differently. Um, and for that reason, actually, if you haven't spotted it already, I've put together a couple of uh, uh, additional videos. I wanted to bring some kind of background information to Revelation as a whole, stuff that didn't actually sit in the passages themselves. Uh, they're available on YouTube, and I think the links are on our Facebook page and various other places. Uh, there's one available now. I'll be posting another one uh, later on next week. So, so do check those out. So there are different views. Hold the book lightly. And then thirdly, and I think very importantly, focus on the big picture. Um, it's absolutely right that we dig into the symbols and the imagery in chapter 4. But the important thing is to focus on what is that pointing us to? What is the big picture? What is the overall narrative? What is it that we're being asked to see here rather than to focus on the detail. If I can sum up the entire book of Revelation in two words, I will. Now, I trust that's not going to invalidate the next 12 weeks of, of teaching, but if you want Revelation in two words, it's simply this. Jesus wins. That's the story of Revelation. Now, we're going to spend 12 weeks digging into that a little bit more, but the big picture, if you take nothing away from today but that, take that away, Jesus wins. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll read the passage. Father, just pray that you bless our time together. Just pray you bless our study. Just give us understanding, Lord. Help me to explain my thoughts and to present this passage. Uh, just give us open minds. Lord, as we said already, just fill us with the Holy Spirit who brings understanding. Amen. So we are in uh, chapter 4. I'm going to read uh, the chapter. I would also say, though, in future weeks, we, we may well be looking at fairly big chunks of Scripture. So we may not have time every week to actually read the whole passage that we're going to be studying, because we may be doing a couple of chapters on a Sunday. But for the purpose of the... So I would encourage you actually to read ahead in Revelation. Do do study that in your own quiet times. Um, but for the purpose of this morning, we're going to read uh, chapter 4 together. So Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked. This is John speaking. This is the revelation that John has had, or is having from Jesus. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes, all round and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. We almost don't have to do anything else, do we? You know, just reading that does our spirits good. Just reading that lifts us. That is just so amazing, just so impressive, such a picture of worship in heaven. Amazing. Well, actually, let's look into the passage then. Uh, John hears this voice like a trumpet that says, Come up here. Uh, So far, the only title we've got for this morning is Revelation 4. If you want something just a little bit more exciting, then I would suggest that. Come up here. John is encouraged to see things from a new perspective, to see things in a new way. And uh, there's three things that I really want to suggest this morning about this perspective. You know I am a person who loves to have kind of three points just so I can manage your time expectations well, we are going to be dwelling a lot of time in the second point. So I have a short point, I have a long point, and I have another short point. So if anybody's looking at your watch and thinking, well, where are we in all of this? One short point, one long point, one short point. But I want to suggest that as we look at chapter 4, we see three things with this, come up here, and I will show you something. It is, first of all, a new perspective. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. It is a familiar perspective, and it is a triumphant perspective. But let's start with the first one there, a new perspective. The scene has changed. See, for the first three chapters of Revelation, we have been viewing a scene from a very earthly perspective. John has had this vision, he's had these letters to write to seven churches. We studied those in the spring. These seven little churches that John himself had been involved in, had been involved in planting. And 19 times, 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, the word church is used. That's the focus of these first three chapters of Revelation. The church. Small churches, which John has been involved in. And if we were to pause here, as as indeed we have for the summer, if we were to pause after chapter 3, there is a gear change as we move into chapter 4. The scene changes. We're not seeing things from an earthly perspective now. John is told to come up here and see things from a heavenly perspective. And there is perhaps one question that we and John might want to ask after chapter 3 that this scene change helps us with. And that question is simply this, what future is there for the church? Well, let me put it another way. Does the church even have a future? 
Because when we look at those first three chapters, when we look at those seven letters, we find small, tiny, struggling churches. In some instances, Jesus has some commendation to say, you're doing well, carry on. In other cases, he has some words of caution, some words of reproach to say, you need to change this. But nevertheless, here are seven churches struggling with opposition, with temptation, with tribulation. We unpacked that all back in the spring. And uh, the question really is, given those circumstances, in another generation, will there even be a church? Will there even be a church? And so John is told to come up here and see something from a new perspective. See something from a different place. See what must take place after this. That's, very, that's a very literal comment, I think, to John, to see what happens after your life. What happens to these churches that you have invested so much of your time in? John was reaching the end of his life. He was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. He was unlikely to ever visit these churches again. Would he see the culmination of his work? What would be the result of that? Well, come up here, John. I'm going to show you. And we see this wonderful picture of worship uh, with elders and creatures and indeed the church around the throne. The church does indeed have a future. Day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. As I said, in chapters 1 to 3, the word church appears 19 times. That word doesn't reappear until the very end of the book, when we have the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. The church is still there in chapters 4 through to 20. The church hasn't gone away, but the perspective has changed. The view has changed. This is a new view. See what this looks like from heaven's perspective. And in the midst of troubles and hardships, there is this picture of victory. In the midst of uncertainty, there is certainty. John can be assured that the church will not just curl up and die. These creatures and elders, however we want to interpret that, However, we want to imagine these symbols. We'll come to that in a moment. But here is the church praising and worshipping for all eternity. This is the, the new perspective that we need to hold on to as we journey into not just the rest of chapter 4, but the rest of this book. So secondly, I said that was going to be a short point. The, the second point, this is a familiar perspective. Now, whoa, you all say at that point. Whoa, you, you all say at that point. How, I, a little bit of audience participation. If Steve was here, we'd have audience participation, wouldn't we? Come on, you know, we, we got to, you know, whoa, can I hear a whoa? Whoa, you all say. How can this in any way be familiar? Uh, creatures that look like an ox and a lion and a something else. You know, it's anything but familiar. But this is going to be the key to kind of unlocking what comes next. Because a very helpful principle in understanding 
what at first seems like a strange passage in Scripture, and again, you know, there's strange passages in other books apart from Revelation. Revelation's got a handful of them, but there's, there's a good few in other, in other books. A good principle in understanding what at first seems like a strange passage is to ask the question, where have we seen this before? Where in Scripture have we seen this before? Uh, someone uh, has totted up, I think, the symbols in Revelation. I didn't do it myself. I've taken this on good authority from somebody else. But there are, there are apparently some 400 instances of symbols or pictures or references to things in Revelation. Something like three quarters of those, over 300, are actually mentioned previously in Scripture. So you see, we have this toolkit to understand what we're seeing here, even though to us at first glance, it seems very strange. So I said this was going to be a big point because this itself is going to break down into three kind of little bits. But the principle that we're going to apply here is to ask that question as we unpack chapter 4. Have we seen this before? So let's look at verse 3. John has this vision and he says, uh, and he says, uh, and he who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the first thing I want to look at here is what does this mean? And whether you, you're familiar with the, thro- the, the Jasper and Carnelian and emerald we probably get, but they're actually all gemstones. They're all actually precious stones. Uh, Carnelia, a jasper, is actually a clear gemstone, um, probably like a diamond. We, 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 we probably say diamond these days. Carnelian is more commonly known as sardis or ruby. It's, it's a bright red gemstone. An emerald, we're kind of used to, that's a kind of bright green gemstone. So when, he, when John is having this vision of this throne, and he's saying, oh, he who... See, again, just John doesn't say he's seeing God. What we, we know he's seeing God through, through the phrases that the people that worship him use. But, but it's this picture that's just surrounded in light. I mean, the best John can do, he's struggling with words. He says, oh, it, it's like carnelian and jasper and emerald. That's, that's the best I can describe it. But we have to ask the question, where have we seen this before? And back in Exodus 28, there's a big passage there about how the priests in the Old Testament had this special breastplate that they would wear. There's kind of picture there. And on it were 12 gemstones. And those 12 precious stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. There was one for each of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. And the first stone on that breastplate was the ruby. And most commentators will say that represents the firstborn son, Reuben. The last stone, the jasper, represented the youngest son, Benjamin. And the fourth stone, the emerald, would, if you do the sons, that represents Judah, who's the tribe from whom Jesus himself was descended. And so by saying, I see someone or something that looks like jasper and carnelian and emerald, it's kind of this encompassing picture of all the people of God. Certainly from a first century perspective. Now, we ourselves, 
we know that the people of God is a little bit wider than the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we, in the 21st century, we kind of resonate more with chapter 7 and verse 9, uh, which says, after this I look, this is, and actually this is still John's same vision. I'm jumping into chapter 7, but this vision that John has here goes from chapter 4 through to the beginning of chapter 8. It's all the one vision. So if we jump ahead very briefly to Revelation 7, it says here, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, we resonate with that verse, don't we? That's a verse that we read. That's a verse that means something to us. At the end of the time, well, yes, John, we're with you on that. A great multitude that no one can number, every tribe, every nation, every people group standing before the throne. Amen, bring it on. Yep, that's that's a 21st century verse for us. But when we read, hey, I look and I see Jasper, Carnelian and Emerald, that's a first century way of saying exactly the same thing. I'm seeing all people, John is seeing all people before the throne. Now, as I said before, you you can do your own digging, you can watch your own videos, read your own books. Different people will give you some different, because there are many other perspectives on on these gemstones. And that's why I say the big picture in all of this is important. Because wherever it points us to, it points us to this picture of all people before the throne. Whether you're reading Revelation in the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, up to the 21st century, you come away from the beginning of chapter 4 and say, I can see all people before the throne. Do you get that point? That's kind of what these gemstones are saying. Well, we can do a similar thing with the four creatures in verses uh, 6 to 8. And here's again where this kind of symbolism and this strange picture kind of kicks in. What's this all about? And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Um, Setting aside what that actually looks like, if you could imagine it or draw it or or have it in your mind's eye, setting aside what that actually looks like. Here again is a picture of completeness. Here is a picture of everyone around the throne. Now, as I said, there's a number of ways to understand these symbols. We need to hold different viewpoints lightly. But let me just share with you a couple of ideas that people have suggested or proposed that that we could understand these four creatures. Some have said that they represent all of creation. The lion represents wild animals. The ox represents domesticated animals. The eagle, flying creatures. And the man, clearly mankind. And when you look at those four creatures, you have this kind of uh, broad brush picture of kind of all of creation represented. Again, it's for you to say how far you want to kind of go with that. Other people have said, well, we've got four creatures. There's a link here with kind of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And the Gospels, although very similar in many respects, do have a different slant and a different flavour and a different direction. Matthew is often talked about as the Gospel of Jesus the King. Matthew talks about the, the, the rule, the royalty. Yeah, you struggle when you start to read the Gospels. The very first chapter of Matthew is just this family tree. What's that all about? Well, it's showing that the, 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 the royal lineage of Jesus. Matthew is the gospel of Jesus the king. And hey, we've got the lion, the king of the animals. Mark is known as the, the gospel of Jesus the servant. It focuses on Jesus, the one who came, the suffering servant, the one who came to meet the needs of others. And, and here's the ox, a creature that serves mankind. Luke is known as the gospel of Jesus the man. Luke, above all the gospels, highlights and points us to the humanity of Jesus. And here's a creature that looks like a man. And John is the gospel of Jesus the God. Starts with those incredible words, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so John is this wonderful gospel of Jesus who's divine. And then you have, so you have this picture of this eagle, this, this creature up high who comes swooping and flying down. Again, some symbology here that covers all, uh, all of those writings. Now, again, I wouldn't get up on, hung up on any one particular interpretation. But I would see the big picture that again says, here is all of creation, however you want to break those symbols down, before the throne. Here's all people before the throne. Here is all creation before the throne. Do you see the kind of big picture that Revelation 4 is pointing us to as we see this picture of worship? Before anybody asks about the eyes and the wings, well, what about the eyes and the wings, I hear you say? <laughs> Thank you so much, Dave. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'll, I'll give you my personal viewpoint on that one. I, I, I'm not even going to share with you what other people have suggested, but it actually means something very, very personally, personal to me. Because I actually, and again, it's all to do with this picture of completeness and being involved in worship. It's, it's great as we gather together, isn't it, uh, corporately again, to worship together. Thanks, Nathan and Hannah for leading us. You know, that, that's so good to be able to worship in this way. There's a picture here of exciting worship. Now, I'll just tell you a story. I remember the first time that, that I went to a meeting, uh, church meeting, where, where we had kind of charismatic worship that, that we just take for granted now. You know, people singing, people speaking out, people prophesying, people bringing tongues. I, I grew up in a very traditional Baptist church. You know, you, you had a, a pillar on the side there with the hymn numbers on, okay? And it was a very kind of Mr. Bean type thing. You would say, the next hymn's number 67. So, so you would have your hymn book open to number 67. So that when the pastor said, we're going to sing the next hymn, you could stand up very serenely. Your hymn book would already be open at the right hymn. You could look so proud at being ready to go. That's as exciting as it got. Now, I'm, I'm, it was a great church. I'm dissing it, which I shouldn't. Um, but, but that was my background. So, so I, was, I was blown away when, when, when I was invited and first got involved in it to, to this, this other meeting this, where, where people were, in the, again, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, where people were just first experiencing the Holy Spirit. 
kids are learning about up there, which is so fantastic, experiencing the Holy Spirit for the first time. And I'm standing there, blown away with this worship, and, and, and there's this, this guy bringing this prophecy from the other side of the room. I wanted eyes all over me to kind of see what was going on. I felt I needed eyes 360 degrees around. Oh, someone over there is bringing a tongue. I want to I see that. I need to turn. Am I allowed to turn around and look at someone? I wanted to do that. I wanted wings to kind of be on the other side of the room and be next to that person that was bringing that tongue, bringing that interpretation. Standing still just didn't cut it anymore in worship. I needed to see, I needed to move. And when we come to the elders, we see this great picture of, of people bowing down and you know, bowing down, closing your eyes. It is a wonderful picture, a perfect way to worship God. But, but there's something about worship that's active and motive and exciting. And I just wanted to be everywhere in that room. I wanted to see everything in that room. And so personally for me, when I read of creatures with eyes and wings all over them, I say, bring it on. When I get to heaven, that's what I want. Because that's the only way I'm going to get involved in all of what's happening here. Covered in eyes and wings. Bring it on, I want that. I get closer to, to what I can experience, what's going on. Just, just imagine for a moment, just imagine thousands and thousands and thousands from every tribe and every nation before the throne. Okay? If you see somebody on the other side of heaven that you want to have a chat with, you're going to have to get a bus or a train there because there's going to be so many people. You know, we need wings. We're going to need wings, guys, to get around. Just sense where I'm going with it, this exciting picture of uh, these creatures. Okay, lastly, not, not lastly, lastly, but lastly in these three points of point two, just to keep the ge ge geography right here, um, we have these elders, 24 elders, uh, is that number important? Well, yes and no. Remember, let's not get too hung up on the exact symbology and the exact meaning, but there's certain things we can see in 24. Many scholars would say, well, actually, there's, there's 12 tribes in the Old Testament. We've already seen that, 12 tribes of 12 sons of Jacob. And there were 12 apostles. Again, there's this kind of picture of completeness and unity. You stick the 12 tribes from the Old Testament together with the 12 apostles from the, the New Testament. You've got a picture of church history. You've got the church throughout the ages before the throne. Now, for these 24 elders, does one have to physically be Reuben or Gad or Timothy or Mark? I, I don't think so. I think it's symbolic. I think it's representative of the whole victorious church before the throne. That's the, that's the symbol, that's the picture that we're meant to take away. We have this wonderful picture of these, these elders. I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure in my own mind that these elders symbolize the triumphant resurrected church. Whether, whether they're 12 tribes, 12 apostles, whether they're symbolic of the church before the throne, they, they certainly are the redeemed church. Others have suggested angels, but I don't think that that's right. I, I would suggest that they do represent the church for a number of reasons to do with the crowns that they wear. I mean, white robes are always a symbol of purity uh, and, and cleanliness. That's fine. But I think there's something really important in, in the crowns that they wear. 
And this again comes down to the, our, our sort of language problems in that we don't kind of translate uh, Greek or Hebrew in quite the same way. There's not a one-to-one -one translation into English. Because there's a couple of words that both translators crown, but they mean something different in the original text. You see, there's two words for crown. The first word that we have is a diadem. You'll hear of a diadem, and that's a crown that is worn by a king or a monarch. It's a crown that's worn by somebody that, that has the royal right to wear a crown. And every time we read in Scripture of Jesus wearing a crown, that's a diadem crown. Now, these elders, when it talks of the crowns that they wear and the crowns they cast before the throne, it's not using the word diadem there. It's using another word that we also translate as crown, but it's using the word stephanos. And that's a crown that is a victor's crown. It's the crown that's given to somebody like an athlete that has won the race uh, and competed and won. Again, that's a, that's a picture that's very strong in Paul's writing in the New Testament. You know, I run to complete the race that I might win the prize for which Christ has called me. That prize, that crown is a Stephanos crown. And so, so that leads us to see this is a picture of the victorious church before the throne, casting their crowns before him, saying, worthy, worthy are you uh, to receive honour and glory and power for you created all things and by your will they created forever. So, gemstones, creatures, elders... They're symbols of a united creation, all people, all ages, before the throne. That's what we're seeing in chapter 4 of Revelation. And then my third point, I said it was a new perspective, it was a familiar perspective. Thirdly, it's a triumphant perspective. Lastly, and, and quickly, I've kind of said this already, but, but I wanted to end with this point, because I think this is really important. This is the takeaway thing from this passage. Because I want you to think a moment about what some of the verses that we've read in chapter 4. Worthy, oh, we're, I'm going to just read it again, because we can just do, you know, again, we're promised a blessing when we read Revelation. I, I don't have to explain Revelation to you. I just have to read it to you, and you get blessed. I mean, how cool is that? Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now what I would suggest, if you just take that verse for a moment, wouldn't that be a neat way to end the whole book of Revelation? Just imagine for a moment, if we just lifted chapter 4 out, Again, we're not meant to do this with Scripture, so I'm doing this metaphorically, not literally, just so you're really clear on that. But let's just imagine that, that we lifted Revelation 4 out and made a chapter 23, okay, and stuck Revelation 4 at the end. It would work. It would work if the last words that we read in Scripture were, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they created and, are and exist. That would work. Now here's the point. 
We have that in chapter 4. Because we need to know at the beginning of Revelation, before we get to all this further tough stuff, that the weirdness of Revelation, as Andrew Wilson calls it so often, before we get to that weird stuff, we need to know that the victory is assured. This isn't a battle that we get to chapter 4 in and think, I wonder who's going to win. Because Revelation would be a very, very scary book if in chapter 4 we were saying, I wonder who wins. We need to know in chapter 4 that there's a victor. I don't know if you've ever watched Star Wars. I can't imagine there's anybody... Well, there might be somebody in the room that hasn't watched Star Wars. If you haven't watched Star Wars, go home this afternoon and watch Star Wars. But, but, but do you remember the end scene in Star Wars? That, that, that great throne room scene with Luke and Han and Chewie and, and Princess Leia sticks these medals around their necks and, and there's that great John Williams score, that orchestral score that swells up. And, you know, the med- and, and boom, there's the end credits. And you think, what a story! Now, you don't get the throne room scene, that scene, at the beginning of the movie, do you? Because the whole tension, the whole drama, the whole, the whole draw of Star Wars is who will actually win? We don't find that out until the end. And at the end, we've got the throne room and the medals are presented and not exactly worthy of you forever and ever, but, but well done, Han and Chewie, and look, well done. But you see, in Revelation... The victor's already assured at the beginning of the story. And so when John is told to come up here, that's the little secret. That's the big secret that he is being exposed to. There is a victory. There is a victor. This story is going somewhere. Let me close with a story that I just loved when I first heard this. Uh, It concerns a number of uh, young students at Bible College in America. And they were studying Revelation and struggling with their study of Revelation, as I guess most Bible students do that want to understand every kind of little jot and tittle and nuance of of the book. And they've been studying this book for weeks Uh, talking it over with their tutor, and they were still very bemused about what Revelation meant. So they did what most uh, young American guys would do, I guess. They went and had a game of basketball. Uh, We have to kind of assume that seminaries in America have gyms, but we'll go with that one. So they're having this game of basketball. And as they're playing this game of basketball, they notice that the janitor, this old guy, is sitting on the bleachers, on 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 the seats at the end, waiting to kind of lock up with the keys around his neck. And uh, he's reading the Bible. So at the end of their basketball game, they they go up to him and ask him what he's reading. And he says, I'm reading Revelation. And they say, oh man. They roll their eyes, they, they, they hang their heads, they say, that's a tough book. That's a hard book, you know, they didn't quite say it, but you're an old guy, you know, we're, we're young, we're, you know, we're there, we, we've been wrestling with this, and oh, that's a tough book to read. And he said, no, 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 no. It's the simplest book in all of the Bible. And again, they hang their heads and they say to him, how can that possibly be? And he looks at them and he says, Jesus wins. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for 
your word. I just thank you that we have been able to, to, to kick into this incredible book, this incredible vision. Uh, I pray that it would speak to us in, in however, in whatever way you want to, to speak to us. Lord, just fill us with understanding. Just pray your Holy Spirit will come on us now just to seal these words, just to give us confidence, to give us assurance, to just know that you are with us and for us for all eternity. Amen. Amen. I'm going to hand back to the guys to, to just lead us in a bit of worship. Thank you.